and welcome to episode 8 of JobsCast. Pat Bubble here, P-A-T dot B-U-B-U-L at gmail.com, at Pat Bubble on Twitter if you want to drop a line. Before introducing today's guest, I'd like to talk for a few minutes about the seedy underbelly of self-help and independence. The self-help genre is distasteful to many because it is corny, repetitive, and full of easy-to-say-but-impossible-to-do bromides. I would also add that it's based on a lie. There may be a small amount of self-help happening at the moment when you decide to purchase a self-help book, but once you open to the first page where the real helping begins, if it ever does, you are reading someone else's writing, not your writing. Someone else is helping you. Why do we lie and say we're helping ourselves? I think it's because we hate being helped. We're dogmatic about independence. Asking for help, which is an announcement of provisional dependence, seems to be somehow beneath being American. Here are the sugary messages we are strongly encouraged to consume growing up in the U.S. Independence is strength. Dependence is weakness. Independence is courage. Dependence is cowardice. Independence is leadership. Dependence is losership. The reality in this proud nation of ours is that we need help. Independence is looking decreasingly glamorous and increasingly like isolation, disconnection, and enemy. Psychologist Adam Grant asks, why isn't there a help others section in bookstores? A good question. I would also dedicate at least a shelf to letting others help us. To be clear, at the macro level, independence, as it is enshrined in founding U.S. documents and encoded in our cultural mores, is uncontestably better than dependence within, for example, an authoritarian framework. The problem with independence at the level of the individual is that too much of it creates too much self-dependence. We may feel impelled to convince ourselves that we can do it all on our own, but the world is too formidable for us to navigate completely independently. Bill Withers, who passed in March, had the world convinced of this in 1972 when his hit Lean On Me rose to the top of the charts. We seem to have forgotten the lyrics. Please swallow your pride if I have things you need to borrow for no one can fill those of your needs that you won't let show. We have needs and they are almost always embedded in social dynamics. We need togetherness. We need to begin to view the admission of need as a strength and not a weakness. We may fear the vulnerability attendant on such a project. In an overly modernized world where we are surfeited with comforts, vulnerability comes to feel like a boogeyman. But it's not something we should shy away from. We are mortal and therefore fundamentally vulnerable. It does us no good to pretend otherwise, and no amount of self-help books could possibly transmit the wisdom that comes from looking closely and caringly at our vulnerability. I think it may be time to dispense with the initialism DIY and usher in a new era of DWO, do with others. What better use of our time could there be than to co-create positivity with others? One way to work toward the co-creation of positive experiences is to do like today's guest Bonnie Holiday does, work to protect people from harm. While I find Bonnie's resume to be quite impressive for its stellar record of caregiving, Bonnie is also a wellspring of positivity in a harder-to-quantify way. She emanates a warm and friendly, but also focused and intelligent energy that makes you want to spend time with her and hear her stories and really gives you a sense of the brightness that humanity is capable of emitting. Bonnie mentions at one point in our conversation how, in choosing a line of work, she thought about how she could help the world, and at another point she mentions wanting to make sure that her tax-dollar-funded work hours were being put to their maximum utility. These are admirable and, in the case of Bonnie, I believe quite authentic considerations, but Bonnie isn't a pure altruist, which I'm not even sure anyone is. She also wanted adventure as a young person, and that was a key motivator in her decision to become a wildland firefighter. The first half of our conversation focuses on Bonnie's work in that role, and the second half turns to Bonnie's present job as a substance abuse prevention program manager at the Office of Behavioral Health in Colorado. Some of the subtopics we get into along the way include the common ingredients of human happiness, the desire for one's work life to be both a source of excitement and a means of giving back, the game-changing executive order that Barack Obama passed in 2012 for wildland firefighters, the pay details of wildland firefighters, making a career pivot in one's 30s, the four major denominators of fire behavior in fatal and near-fatal fires, the ACEs framework, ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, and Bonnie and I also talk about what happy work means to her, what it feels like waking up on a Monday morning, 
and the hopefulness Bonnie has around the potential for community connections to alleviate childhood trauma. And finally, for my fellow word nerds out there, Bonnie drops some good wildland firefighting lingo, such as running crown fire and digging line, the latter of which I didn't actually ask Bonnie to define, so I'll tell you here that digging line essentially means digging a trench several feet wide around the perimeter of a fire to remove any fuel sources that could burn within the fire line. So without further preamble, I now present to you my conversation from September 25th with the wonderful Bonnie Holiday. Bonnie, thanks for being a part of JobsCast. Hello, thank you so much for inviting me today. I appreciate it. So Bonnie, why don't we begin by talking about your work as a wildfire fighter? Can you tell the listeners when you got started with that, how long you did it for, and where you did it? Absolutely. So I actually got started with that in 2007. I was part of an AmeriCorps program, and they placed us with a fire department in Arizona. I did it until 2015 was my last season, and from 2007 to 2015, I worked for a variety of agencies and in a variety of locations. My first, I want to say, three seasons were for local fire departments, so one in Crown King, Arizona, one in Larkspur, Colorado. Then I worked at the North Rim of the Grand Canyon for the National Park Service. I then worked for the Bureau of Land Management in Dolores, Colorado. Then I worked for the Bureau of Land Management again in Moab, Utah. There I was actually part of a helicopter crew. And then for my final season, I worked at the Santa Fe National Forest in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I was also on an engine crew. And you grew up in Colorado, Bonnie? That is correct. I grew up in Colorado Springs, and I went to school at CU Boulder. How would you say the geography of where you're from impacted your identity and ultimately your career trajectory? Oh, that is an excellent question. So where I grew up, I feel very lucky because it was kind of the best of both worlds. The part of Colorado Springs I was in, we were very close to a canyon, beautiful open spaces, but also close to the comforts of suburbia and then also a unique downtown. So kind of the best of three worlds. So I grew up actually riding horses. And I remember at an early age, um, my horseback riding kind of allowed me a lot of freedom that maybe a lot of 11 or 12 year old girls were able to experience because I had my parents' permission to take my horse Bart out on the trails, and I really got to experience the wild in a place and context that a lot of children don't get to. Wow. So it sounds like you had experiences that fueled your adventurous spirit. Absolutely. And my mom actually instilled in me a love of camping, and she had a group of lady friends from college, and every summer we would go on camping trips together. That's great. Sounds like an idyllic childhood. It really was. It really was. Would you say that your upbringing also imparted in you a belief that it was important to give back? Because I'm struck by the fact that you entered into AmeriCorps early on, and then you were a wildfire fighter for many years. So was it was that something you were consciously thinking of, of, you know, helping and wanting to give back? Or was it more that these were, I guess, more adventurous experiences or probably some of both? Well, I will say my mom was a public school teacher, an English teacher for, I think, over 30 years. My dad was in upper leadership at a nonprofit. So I think even without realizing it, the values of um, mm. giving back and serving were instilled in me. And I would say when I made the decision to join AmeriCorps, I was looking for adventure and then also an opportunity to give back. And I think the ironic thing about firefighting is people always thanked us. You know, sometimes when we were coming back from a shift on a wildfire through the town, they would have their signs out, which was so great. And while I know I was helping people, honestly, the, the best part of it for me at the time was the adventure. Interesting. I, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> um, so... Let's jump into the fire. What is it like? What is it like feeling the heat and being next to the vast energy and power of a fire? Take us through some of these felt experiences. 
Sure. So when you do initial attack or um, direct line, so let's say you and your crew get called out to a fire that has started recently, there's a good chance that you're going to be digging direct line. And so we use hand tools, shovels, and things that actually you might see in the repertoire of a a very serious gardener, but maybe a little (laughs) bit more aggressive. And we also use a lot of chainsaws. And so it's a lot of hiking. I think our packs weighed usually, you know, depending on preference of what you wanted to carry between 30 and 40 pounds. Wow. That's a lot of weight. It is. It is. And then you also oftentimes will carry either fuel for the saw, a chainsaw. Sometimes you'll carry, if you have a large crew and you're going to be away from your engine, you're probably going to switch off between carrying about five gallons of water for the crew. And so that's an extra 40 pounds. So sometimes you're carrying up to 70 pounds. And um, the terrain that you're in is sometimes extremely steep. Most of the time we don't access it through a traditional trail. So it's a lot steeper than, you know, what you might experience when you're out for, you know, an afternoon hike. The temperatures could vary. So in early season fires, such as April, and then also late season, I've actually been on fires where it snowed. And when we slept out at night, it got into the probably single digits. Oh, wow. When I was in Utah, sometimes the ambient air temperature was 100 or even higher than that. And then plus you add in the heat of the flames. I'm thinking about how certain careers are heavily dramatized or romanticized in media. I think when we think of doctors, we think of the ER doctor performing a life-saving operation as opposed to the family care provider who's looking at fungus on someone's toe. And I think with what you're describing, hiking and digging, I wouldn't say that those things are are mundane by any stretch of the imagination. I think that they're still quite exotic for most people who, you know, work in cubicles, but it does sound like it's not always the the heroic firefighter knocking down the door. And in your case, you're you're not working with doors, you're working out in nature. So, I'm guessing there aren't these like flashy heroic moments that there is a lot of just sort of grunt work, hard work. But that said, I mean, how often would you say that the job involved sort of carrying out protocol, like getting to where you needed to be, digging the line, et cetera, versus things that felt extremely urgent? And as I'm saying this, I'm realizing like both are heroic, really. This is the other thing that we forget about, like doing like the work that is relatively mundane is necessary to keep people safe and to, pre- and to prevent the fires from spreading. So I want to challenge my own assumption in here as I'm, as I'm listening to myself and speaking to you. But, but the question is, when did the job to you, Bonnie, feel supremely urgent and even dangerous? And when did it feel like, okay, you know, we're on a hike, we're outside, we got to do this, but uh, just relatively involves following protocol? Sure, that's an excellent question. And it actually makes me think of something One of my supervisors and a mentor to me said once, 90% of the job just sucks. It's very physical. (laughs) It can get very monotonous at times. So after, you know, the initial flame front has kind of calmed down, it's almost like if you've ever put out a campfire, but it's giant and it's just very tedious and it just Mm. won't go out. What he used to say was 90% of it sucks, but you do it for the 10%, which is cooler than anything else you'll ever see or do again. Five years later, I still believe that's true. Even though you had trained for it and there was protocols and kind of a standard operating procedure, especially the first few seasons, um, it all felt so new and so exciting. When the fire gets up in the trees, we call that a crown fire. And Mm. if it's um, a running crown fire, so that's wind driven, it's a terrible but spectacular force of nature. You know, unfortunately, with a lot of the deaths and the structures in California and also this winter in Australia, that's really what came into play. To make a, an analogy, if it was an ocean, when it turns from just kind of the gentle um, undulation of the waves to a tsunami, that's oh, wow. in terms of, I would say, civilian and then also civilian life loss and then also property damage. Um, that's usually what contributes to it. And it's a beautiful forest. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, but it's also terrifying. I remember in Oregon, they asked us, we realized that we were pretty close to the flame front. So we actually withdrew. We got in our vehicles. We fell back to an identified safety zone 
And then we came back to where we'd been working. We were working off the square service road. We went back about an hour and a half later and the fire had actually melted the road signs. And, wow. and I think there's also something to be said, um, you know, as I mentioned, some of it is very routine, monotonous. Sometimes it feels like you're on the same fire, even though it's a different fire. They've studied fire fatalities and they've basically boiled it down to four common denominators. And one of those common denominators is the majority of firefighter fatalities occur either on a small fire, so meaning maybe even 100 acres or less, which is relatively small, or parts huh. of a small fire. So I think sometimes that complacency can, you know, get the best of us. Sort of reminds me of the, the well-known driving statistic that the majority of accidents happen within a mile close to home. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, perhaps people's attention gets more lax. There's something about that in human nature. I wonder if there's a psychology term for that. Even in, I'm even thinking about in sports. Sometimes there's an upset because the more dominant team sort of takes it easy and expects it to not be a tough fight. Bonnie, did you have any anything that you would call a close call or any situations where you were genuinely worried about your own safety? Yes, I would say that I did. Within an average season, I would say that there's probably two to three events and actually a lot of them because we did, uh, we call it felling trees. So when we take down a tree with a chainsaw, a lot of the events actually involve trees. Loggers have extremely dangerous jobs. And so when we did fall trees, especially if the trees were fire weekend, they can just be extremely unpredictable. I also, I experienced a loss. I think that would have been the second season I worked in Dolores and they actually made a movie about this event, but that year, that was 2013, an entire crew died, 19 people at once. And, oh, wow, um, that's horrible. Yeah, there was actually one survivor, but they had an unexpected uh, shift in winds, which is another common denominator. And um, one of the people on the crew had been someone that I started my career with. We were on our first fire together. As a firefighter, you experience a lot of transience. So for a sure. while, we were housemates, very, very close, spent a lot of holidays together and Actually, my dog is one of his dog's puppies. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. When that happened, it was um, a horrible loss for the community and then also on a personal level. And that actually contributed my to my decision to get out because I was um, becoming higher up in the ranks, still a grunt, but more kind of exploring that squad boss role mm-hmm. and realizing that my decisions could not only impact my life and safety, but realizing that it could impact other people's lives and safety. I just didn't have the heart to really take that responsibility on. Mm. It's great that you had that self-knowledge because I think some some people just plow ahead and assume that the next rung is right for them. And it's okay for it not to be right. And listeners will soon find out that you pivoted into uh, another great career, which I definitely want to talk about. One other question related to the firefighting, Bonnie, is When we talked uh, a few weeks ago, you mentioned the experience that sometimes you would land in high school football fields. So sometimes you're in a plane, sometimes you're landing in unexpected places and sleeping in some unexpected places. That sounds extremely fun and invigorating. And I would just like to hear about some of those experiences. Sure. So I think another... And actually, this person was a rookie that said this to me, but it was so true. He said one of his favorite things was, you never know where you're going to sleep. So the expectation is once the fire season is up and going, that you have what we call a 14-day bag. And so in that bag, you have it ready to go anytime, and you have enough to basically be sufficient for 14 days. You have your tent, 14 days worth of socks, underwear, a few shirt changes, Definitely not 14, though. It gets smelly. <laughs> and the exciting part is you really never know where you're going to sleep. So I remember one time they told us the night before, hey, you're going to go on a helicopter assignment in Washington. And actually, I even had time to go to, I think, a general store and get a rain jacket. So I was like, OK, it rains a lot in Washington. And we got there and they were like, oh, you're actually you're going to go to Durango, Colorado, and be on a hand crew. Two of my coworkers and I were all kind of part of this uh, juggling around. We're like, okay. And then they said, no, actually, you're going to go to Washington. We're going to get you um, to the airport soon. 
And then about an hour later, they handed us the keys to a government truck and said, okay, we, we need you to drive to Eagle County, Colorado, and you're going to tie in with a helicopter from Mesa Verde National Park. Wow. And at first, it seemed like we were actually going to have a pretty sweet deal. Eagle County was beautiful. It looked like we were going to get hotels. And then they put us on the helicopter, and it was September. And I remember that night, we ended up sleeping out because of a miscommunication. We didn't have tents, but we slept out in 16-degree weather, and it was extremely cold. Wow, 16 degrees. And what did you have? Sleeping bags? Yeah, we did have sleeping bags and we also had tarps. And it was actually a situation where we, you know, just kind of basically slept all right next to each other. Actually, this is, I think, a perfect segue into the topic of Barack Obama's executive order that we also talked about when we first chatted a couple weeks ago. I think listeners will have a, a picture already from what you've said about how tough the work is, how vital the work is, and what we haven't mentioned yet is that it doesn't pay very well, and we definitely need firefighters. and as far as the economics of careers go, they are not treated the best. So tell listeners, Bonnie, if you will, a little bit about the money one can make in this role and what can be expected from a, from a career standpoint. Sure. So... I would say um, at the federal level, um, most of your, so if you have a 20-person crew, the majority is going to be at the GS4 level. So that's usually an hourly rate of about $14 an hour. You do, anytime that you're on a fire that's considered uncontained, even if it's for just an hour of your day, you do get a hazard differential pay. So you get a little bit of a bump, so that's good. And then you do get a lot of overtime because Typically, you go out for 14 days at a time. You can get extended for 21. You're working all of those days, and you're working 16-hour days. So in an average season, I would accrue about $800, or I'm sorry, 800 hours of overtime. So that is time and a half. Um, so the overtime and the hazard pay do definitely supplement that $14 an hour. However, if you're a seasonal employee, you get laid off usually around this time of the year. And at that point, there's, you know, no guarantee that you'll go back to next year. If it wasn't a good fit, they're probably not going to hire you back. Your benefits end. And actually, when I first started as a seasonal, you were not entitled to benefits, meaning that you did not have access to health insurance. As you can see, there's a lot of hazards within the job. Which is such a wild thing to think about, not having health insurance as someone who's fighting fires. Yeah, And you were able to access workman's comp. I think anyone in any industry who's ever had to file a claim with workman's comp knows that it's a nightmare. I knew someone, they were working on their chainsaw. And there's a tool that we would all use almost like a screwdriver. And, I mean, it was just common practice, even though the manual said to wear gloves. It was almost impossible to actually wear your gloves when you were working with this tool. And the weirdest thing happened where this guy somehow broke the tool in half. And it, w- it wasn't even a life-threatening injury, but he did end up cutting his wrist really badly. Oof. And the bureaucrats ruled that because he wasn't wearing proper PPE, he wasn't eligible for oh my compensation. Oh, gosh. Wow. That makes me so angry. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But I think a big game changer for the industry as a whole was in 2012 when there was actually fires in Colorado Springs. And President Obama came out to visit firefighters, and he was briefed that most of the people working did not have access to health insurance, even though they were federal employees. And so he signed an executive order that granted access to insurance to seasonal employees that were fighting wildfires. And, you know, we all heard about it almost immediately, but, you know, the speed that the government works out, we're like, okay, we're going to see that in about five years, I bet. The next day, every station in the United States received an email saying effective immediately. And I couldn't believe it. It was the next day. Yeah, it was so great. And the funniest thing is, you know, there's always that delay. Okay, this is how it's actually going to be implemented. So I think actually at first I signed up for insurance that I wasn't even supposed to get because it was for mail carriers. 
And so I'm glad that I didn't have any incident where I needed to use the insurance because I, I don't think it would have worked out for me, which is kind of funny in, in retrospect. But I really appreciate what President Obama did for us. And currently, there's actually a big movement among wildland firefighters. And they're, I think, currently um, petitioning the House of Representatives to increase pay. Basically, instead of having people rely on overtime and hazard pay to have higher wages and actually have them be salaried. And I agree with this because actually I think in terms of budgeting, it'll be easier because you'll know exactly how much each one of your workers is going to get paid. As opposed to estimates about overtime and hazard pay. Exactly. Exactly. It no longer will be a moving target. You'll be able to, you know, work around that as an administrator. Sounds mutually beneficial as an employee too, knowing how much money you'll be earning. Yeah, it it really is. I think it's a win-win situation for all And then other parts of the petition are asking for increased mental health supports. I think the suicide rate among wildland firefighters is 30% higher than people in other professions. Mm. So increased access to mental health supports. And yeah, I think, again, that would be a win-win situation. Um, We do see more suicide than we would like to, you know, among our brothers and sisters, more abuse in terms of substances. And also this time of year was always hard because you went from six months where you were tired at the end, but you also had been working closely with people that were like family to you, to all of a sudden just being released from work. And while most people did have fun things forward to, um, a lot of people were ski instructors in the off season or maybe even planned trips. It is a huge transition to have something take up, you know, 16 hours of every day to all of a sudden just not having any really big connection. Yeah, I really can't think of a more bonding experience than that amount of hours plus the variable of sometimes not knowing where you're going to sleep for 14 days in a row. That feels like a good definition of adventure, by the way, not knowing where you're going to sleep from night to night. Although I guess it could be the definition of a nightmare. I mean, that's right. That's the condition of a lot of homeless people in America. So I guess I guess it's relative to what you're doing. Hopefully the situation will improve and that bill will pass in the House and it can become a more stable and predictable career from a financial perspective. Bonnie, let's pivot to your present work. If I remember correctly, you're the program manager at the Colorado Office of Behavioral Well. Uh, <laughs> I'll let you introduce it. I was about to say sure. behavioral wealth. That's not. It's not behavioral wealth, is it? <laughs> I wish. I do wish there was more um, wealth going into behavioral health. I will yeah. say that. <laughs> Um, But yeah, I'm currently one of several program managers for substance abuse prevention at the Office of Behavioral Health in Colorado under the Department of Human Services. We fund communities throughout Colorado. We actually receive federal funds and we fund communities throughout Colorado to do what we call primary prevention activities. And when a lot of people think of substance abuse prevention, maybe one of the first things they think of is D.A.R.E. I'm from the D.A.R.E. generation. Same. You are too. We know how to do drugs if we want to. <laughs> exactly. And we were probably all offered crack cocaine by cops in front of an entire classroom full of fourth graders <laughs> at some point in our lives. So the activities that we fund are um, different from D.A.R.E. We do still fund educational programs in schools, but they have to be evidence-based. So, you know, a lot of longitudinal data over years. And we also fund a lot of activities that just increase overall community resiliency and what we call protective factors, such as connectivity to adults. So we fund mentoring programs, pro-social activities. In Colorado, there's that Colorado twist on things. So a lot of our communities take youth mountain climbing or even ice skating in the winter on open ponds. And so I remember you described it when we were talking as happy work. What makes it happy work? Great memory. So right after I decided that it was my last season firefighting, I went to grad school in Denver and I started working towards my master's in public administration. While I was in grad school, I started working at a treatment facility for youth. In my off seasons, as I mentioned, we did get laid off for six months at a time. And so I actually got my substitute teacher license. So that kind of led me at first, actually, I did, I was a substitute teacher through grad school. And then I started working at this treatment facility for youth. And so a lot of the youth that came in um, were part of the justice system, 
We had a unit for youth involved in gang-related behavior, another unit for youth involved in often specific crimes. So that's typically what they call sex offenders. A lot of trauma, a lot of domestic violence, substance abuse. And in all honesty, I was exposed to young people who had experienced more horrific things at the age of 14 than most people will even Mm. know of anyone experiencing in their whole lives. It was a huge eye-opener for me because a lot of that I didn't think actually happened. A lot of the stories I heard, I was like, I don't think that actually happens in life. But it turns out a lot of people are born into a situation where they're going to experience a lot of trauma. We reference something a lot in both behavioral health and public health called the continuum of care. And so when we look at it, we look at prevention and then early intervention, treatment and recovery. And so at that point in my life, I was in that treatment phase and then also recovery where, you know, I was trying my best to help young people develop coping skills, work through their programming. So as they said, the lingo was so they could get off papers um, and just kind of get out of that system. And I encountered a lot of stories and experiences where it was so frustrating. I remember one young lady who had done excellent in the program and even when it was frustrating, did everything that she was supposed to do. And when she went in front of parole and they asked her if the people she had stolen from, she'd been addicted to a substance and had stolen things from different people to fund her addiction, if they should forgive her, she told the judge that she was not in a place to say what anyone should or shouldn't do, but she hoped that they would. And myself and other staff members really thought that that was a beautiful response. In the judge's opinion, um, she did not show enough empathy. She had a mandatory parole date and she was hoping to come up for parole early. Um, And she ended up being sentenced to write out that mandatory parole date, which was extremely disappointing for everyone because she had done all these things and had gone through her programming. So she actually ended up running from our facility. And when a youth who is in the custody of the Department of Youth Services, it used to be called Corrections here in Colorado, runs from a facility, they automatically get two more years added onto their sentence. Oh, wow. So it was a very eye-opening experience. I learned so much. I met some of the most resilient people that I will probably ever meet in terms of the youth that I worked with, but it was also extremely frustrating. And when I say that what I do now is happy work, every day I'm not no longer in that direct care capacity, so I don't get to work with youth anymore. I'm more providing um, support and guidance for communities that are doing that work for nonprofits and also public health agencies. But to see the evidence point towards activities that we are implementing can actually reverse those trends, can actually prevent people from being um, system involved. It's really heartening. And just to be able to imagine a world where if I have kids, for them to ask me about the treatment facility where I worked. And again, there was a lot of wonderful staff people there. So this is nothing about the people I worked. I think it's more just the system. But for me to be able to describe it and then to look at me and say that's barbaric and that must have been like the middle ages if that makes sense yeah perhaps they can listen to this conversation and learn a little bit about what you've done uh and be proud of their mom for helping usher us out of the middle ages dark ages into a an era characterized more by kindness and gentleness and understanding so bonnie i would like to get perhaps a little technical I, i enjoyed you describing the ACES framework that you employ. We also talked a little bit about a long-term Kaiser study that shed light on some of what you're talking about now. So can you explain those two things to listeners, the ACES framework, as well as this long-term Kaiser study? Absolutely. Absolutely. And any listener who is really immersed in public health, I apologize in advance because that's not where my formal training is. So from a very elementary perspective, here's my explanation of Kaiser and the ACES study. So I believe it started in the 90s. Kaiser started a long-term study where they identified 10 adverse childhood experiences, abbreviated as ACEs. An example of this could be experiencing a parent who has been incarcerated. So if a child had a parent who went to jail, um, or even seeing your mom be physically abused or experiencing abuse yourself. So these factors are now termed 
adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And Kaiser did a study where they monitored people's health and kind of cross-tabbed it against how many ACEs they reported in their lives. And so this study revealed that the long-term health impacts of your childhood are just astounding. And the more ACEs people had, the greater their likelihood of developing everything from heart disease to um, mental health complaints increased. And with each ACE, there was an exponential increase of the likelihood that someone would experience a negative health outcome. And I think another interesting thing to note about this study is because it was done by Kaiser, it kind of, I can't remember the technical term, but most people, especially in the 90s, that were being, they experienced services through Kaiser were mostly um, middle-class Americans that mm. could afford insurance. And so, you know, thinking about this study and if maybe the long-term study was implemented on people on Medicaid, I think we would find even greater correlations between early childhood trauma and later experiencing negative health outcomes in life. Yeah. Wow. And I know that in your role and in your organization, the issues that you either directly address or that you are adjacent to and hoping to ameliorate include food scarcity, substance abuse. You mentioned earlier that some of the trauma you had seen youth endure, it just didn't seem like something that would be happening in real life, that it just seemed like it'd be in some horrific piece of fiction, but you met youth who were dealing with really intense traumas. So when you think about the bigger picture, do you feel, Bonnie, that the organization you work for, which is a state organization, is it meeting the challenge of the collective trauma of youth in Colorado or like most wings of larger bodies that are doing good work in the world? Is it grossly underfunded and under-resourced and needing more to prevent any kid from having this kind of trauma? Sure, that's a, another great question. I would say I'm going to kind of break it up into two answers. You know, the skill set of the people in the organization. And then also, as I mentioned, when I did work in a facility, the people I worked with were amazing. So I say in terms of collective willpower and increase of knowledge, which is another reason that I do like to talk about ACEs, because I think the more the general population knows, the more it kind of makes sense. I think intuitively it does make sense. Yeah, totally. Empowered people feel to maybe even volunteer their time. So I think with the human element, the will to really prevent these traumas and to really work towards a more equitable world is absolutely there. I do think the funding is lagging behind because anytime you're changing systems, it's an expensive process. And I would like to see not just in Colorado, but you know, across the board, more monetary resources being dedicated towards public health and behavioral health, and then also ensuring that people that, you know, youth everywhere have as much of an access to the, you called my childhood idyllic in terms of all the great opportunities I had. And so I would like to have everyone kind of have that access to Mm. um, a beautiful childhood. Absolutely. So I'd like to get into some of the I guess sort of the nitty gritty of your experience. So when you wake up in the morning on Monday and the work week is ahead of you, how do you usually feel? That's a great, great question. I feel always a little bit groggy at first. Okay. <laughs> um, and we are still working remotely. Our office has been great about, you know, putting public health as a priority. And so since we can work remotely, we all are still working remotely. How's that been going overall, transitioning from uh, in-person to remote? I miss the in-person element. I feel actually like in any workspace, a lot of really important conversations start as kind of just small talk banter is rapport, and then just kind of diving into those deeper elements and sharing that information. Zoom is not conducive to small talk. It really isn't. It really isn't. And, you know, there's no water coolers in um, the virtual world. (laughs) So a lot of that organic exchange is missed. I think one benefit is, you know, we all feel like we're able to maybe be more of ourselves. We hear each other's dogs barking in the back. We get to interact with each other's children. We see each other's art. So I think that that really helps us remember that we're all whole people. Mm. Um, And then I actually recently I had the experience where 
I went to, well, I virtually attended um, a longstanding meeting that I go to with stakeholders. And an hour later, not even an hour later, but 30 minutes later, I was able to attend a planning meeting for a government committee that I'm on. And normally I wouldn't have been able to attend that meeting because it would have been an hour drive away. But I was able to attend both meetings and I was actually able to share some information that I learned in the first meeting and the second meeting. So I think that is actually a benefit of being able to, you know, attend more meetings, which I think on a personal level sometimes leads to a little bit of fatigue at the end of the day. But in terms of sharing information and then also as a person who's paid through taxpayer dollars, I do feel like the taxpayers are getting more of a return on their investment in me when I have more opportunities to um, to share information and spread information throughout the day. Interesting. So more access and opportunity to do more. And also that intimacy component that you touched on, hearing each other's dogs and seeing paintings. It's interesting to me because on the one hand, it is literally a lens into the private life of another person. And yet the technology is still such that there's so much physical data missing from those interactions that you get face-to-face, whether it's pheromones or whether it's eye contact that's not glary and mediated by a screen. And then obviously the physical contact of occasionally shaking hands or I guess, you know, when appropriate, hugging people. It's interesting. I moved recently and my new neighbors yesterday, it was a couple of guys and they were playing music and having a beer and just enjoying the nice weather. And I guess I've so internalized the sort of safety protocols of COVID that I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe they're in a pod or maybe they've all, who knows, maybe they haven't been following the rules. I don't know. Maybe they're just getting together. But in my case, I'm always thinking about these steps prior to hanging out these days and interacting. And I think in another time, I maybe would have walked over. I had some free time yesterday afternoon too. I maybe would have had a beer with them, got to know them a little bit better, but I didn't realize it until later. Like, oh, I didn't even think of that because my life is conforming to the contours of COVID rules now. So, well, I guess I'll put it back to you in the form of a question, Bonnie. It's beginning to feel normal to me to just, you know, always have my mask on, maintain physical distancing. I wash my hands constantly. I guess with the weather being, you know, we're still in pleasant weather times of year and that's great. But how much would you say you've sort of internalized and allowed some of these rules to become a new normal for you? And how do you feel about that? Yeah, I would say I've internalized a lot, you know, outside of my partner, I could probably count on two hands, the number of in-person interactions I've had with my friends since COVID. And when it is, it's always in an open air setting, usually parks. I think I'm more cautious than a lot of my friends, but they're also very respectful of my needs and wants. Um, So I, I really appreciate them for that. Right. At the end of the day, I feel like everyone is at a slightly different point in their own risk management. And that's ultimately what it is. It seems that there's no perfectly bulletproof way to prevent yourself from getting COVID-19 or spreading it. But yeah, it is tough, even with friends that, you know, you know, and trust and love. They might not be, you know, quite as cautious as you are, or they might be even more cautious and you don't get to see them. So yeah, it's, it's interesting how even among people who, you know, aren't blatantly flouting the rules, there are still nuanced differences in terms of how people have responded to the pandemic and, you know, that impacts our, our social health. Finger, fingers crossed that, you know, the vaccine comes soon. We'll, we'll see what happens with that. But I wanted to ask you too, Bonnie, what would you say your job is at its best and at its worst? And I'd like to hear that from sort of two perspectives. One is sort of what sort of makes you feel the best personally and what makes you feel the worst and then more organizationally when you think the organization that you're part of is really its best impact and then when it's failing sure so i can say i feel my worst personal level whenever i'm trying to figure out budgets and um, (laughs) spending and projecting budgets i'm not very good at it it's funny um because i was a firefighter for eight years there's a lot of i think basic technology things that other people my age know and I don't and Excel is one of them um yeah (laughs) and um my best I've actually I've realized that I really have a passion for facilitating 
discussions and conversations. I've been lucky enough to, I think, really have permission. And then also marching orders is too forceful, but um, I would say permission and then also encouragement from my leadership to really be able to have a lot of meaningful and then even at times what can be uncomfortable conversations about equity and inclusion. And I really enjoy that. And I really enjoy because the more I have these conversations, the more I realize I think that we all want the same thing. You know, we all want, you know, a world where, you know, every child has the potential to have a beautiful childhood where we can all, even as you were saying, be able to sit on our porch, on our space at the end of the day, enjoy a beverage and just enjoy that in peace and enjoy the company of others. I think that that's almost like a universal desire, at least in America. And how we get there is, you know, sometimes a point of disagreement. But I think if we can, you know, look at that common goal, that we are in unity, and just being able to have the privilege of talking to so many different people, whether it be through communities that I fund, through people in different state agencies, for academics, just being able to talk to people about these really important ideas is an absolute privilege. And um, I really, really enjoy it. That's great. I'm so glad that you're brokering those important conversations. And that is such a good message that oddly enough in this era of deep division and polarization sounds controversial but if you think about it for a moment yeah sure we all want similar things it's fairly clear why that's the case because we're all human beings and there are different roads to happiness but most of them entail some cocktail of social interaction peace stability food access to nature. None of those things are really that controversial when we think about it. So I really appreciate that message. One of my recent guests, Jerry Colonna, when I spoke to him before we had our podcast call, I was telling him about my own kind of wandering career path. And he said, those who wander may feel lost with the implication that that need not be the case, that even people who work in the same corporation for 50 years. I think every person in their mind of minds and heart of hearts is experiencing some amount of wandering, some amount of uncertainty, some base level of mystery about what we're doing on earth and why we're here. And so I I wanted to present that to you, Bonnie, because I, I wanted to go back to that transitional moment when you decided you weren't going to continue being a firefighter and then you got into your current role if you don't mind me asking, how, how old were you at that point when you stopped being a firefighter? And what was going on in your mind as you thought about, and I know you said you went to grad school as part of this transition. So what were you kind of feeling and, and thinking at that stage of your life and during that transition? Sure. I was 32. And I think it was, in one sense, it it was so hard to um, give up the identity of being a firefighter because it just bled through every part of my life. But then as I started working in different jobs, such as at the facility, I saw exactly how many skills and concepts I was lucky enough to learn could transfer over. In a lot of ways, at the facility, there was a lot of physical fights, unfortunately. But a lot of the skills that I learned to manage the chaos of a fire or another emergency situation were 100% applicable. So I think at first there was that almost sense of loss and grief that I was leaving one world behind. And then almost a a sense of rebirth when I was like, oh, you know what? It wasn't all in vain and I've learned these skills and now I can apply it to these new areas where I don't maybe have the subject matter expertise as the people that I'm working with, but I bring these new skills I think can be applied. That's great. I think we live in a world that I think is largely governed by the forces of capitalism. And so I think sometimes economic metaphors seem to hold deep truth. We have this notion of sunk cost, and I think people feel so invested in their professional identities, and it doesn't feel smart to back out on that investment, right? One is supposed to invest for the long term. And I think in so many ways, life is completely disanalogous with any concepts that come out of economics. I find that wandering is indicative of a desire to change and to grow and to help yourself and to help others. And it sounds like you've been you've been walking that path, Bonnie. And I so appreciate you sharing your experiences today. And I want to thank you for coming on on Jobscast. Any closing thoughts or, or notes? 
Sure. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking. And I think the closing note I would like to give is, you know, we talked about adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, but a lot of work now is being done um, on some people call them positive childhood experiences. Some call them benevolent. And actually, I just went to a webinar on this this week, but now the preliminary research is showing that adding a positive or benevolent childhood experience into someone's life, such as connection to a trusting adult through a mentoring relationship or even attachment to community, actually has the power of reversing the ACEs power to predict negative health outcomes. And so I think the message of hope that that gives for all of us and the potential is amazing because it kind of empowers each of us in a community to do our best to, you know, bring those benevolent and, and positive experiences to children. I think there's that sense nowadays, there's so much chaos and there's a lot of uncertainty. It's like, how do I make things better? But there's definitely ways that we can make things better that aren't going to just make things better for the instant. And, you know, you take a child on a hike and that's really fun, but it can actually benefit that child for decades to come. And because so many of these things are cyclical, it can benefit future generations. So I think just spreading that message of hope that I was lucky enough to receive this week. That's great. Thank you for sharing. That's a great note to end on. Well, Bonnie, I hope you have a great weekend. And thanks again and hope we can uh, connect again in the future. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, have a great weekend yourself. Thanks, Bonnie. Take care. Bye. Bye.